Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So we are going to today look at the book of Philemon. Now, Philemon is a very short book. It is, has only one chapter and only 25 verses. And if you're going to go through with the notes with us, that's the first line there in your notes, 25 verses. It is right on the doorstep, right before the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews has a whole bunch of theology and doctrine, and it talks a lot about faith and references the Old Testament and kind of ties some of the Old Testament stuff to the New Testament. You'll hear that particular book of Hebrews mentioned quite a bit in churches and by pastors, and you will probably hear as infrequently the book of Philemon because it's so small. But it is one thing that, um, a book that we can easily overlook because of its size and length. It's just so short, but it has a lot of great principles for us as believers. And I want to dive into some of those here this week. So Philemon was a man who was um, a great friend of the Apostle Paul. And scripture indicates they had a very close relationship. Now, I'm not here to tell you that they're BFFs, because I would be kind of reading into the text a little bit. But um, the scripture just kind of points to the fact, and historians and scholars tell us that Philemon and the Apostle Paul were really, really good friends. <clears throat> Philemon was well off from a material perspective and even supported Paul financially on some of his missionary journeys. Paul was very instrumental in his friend Philemon's uh, uh, growth of faith and coming to the Lord and develop into a disciple of Christ. And, and um, Philemon used his business and his wealth to try to help Paul continue sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel to other cities on some of his missionary journeys. <clears throat> now, at the time, Philemon, he was kind of more on the wealthy end of the scale. I wouldn't say he was all the way to the, you know, the most wealthy, but he was in that, uh, that kind of upper financial range. And he had slaves and servants working for him. Now, when we, I want to just kind of quickly sidebar here for a second and let you know that when the Bible talks about slaves, predominantly it's not talking about the way we would view slavery here in the 20th, uh, in in 2020 and in um, the United States. It is more of a reference to kind of an employer employee relationship that kind of type of a thing. And also it is a way of um, borrowing money from someone and working to pay it back in um, uh, kind of in a servant role by um, an agreement that you would repay the amount of money that was borrowed by kind of working it off. So let me give you a quick example. Let's say that, you know, one of our our key uh, guys here at RCC Phoenix is uh, Pastor Brian, right? So let's just, I'm going to use him as an example. He's not here, so he can't fight me on it. So, but it's going to be good. I promise, Brian, if you're just freaking out sitting there watching the, the message here today. But let's say that I go to Brian and say, hey man, my roof is leaking and I need to borrow $5,000. I don't, my insurance is not going to cover it for whatever reason. I don't like have a home warranty or anything like that. And I don't have enough cash on hand. I want to borrow $5,000 from him to fix my roof. And Brian says, okay, no problem. I'll give you the money. How are you going to pay it back? I'm like, well, you know what I can do is I have some time. So I'm going to, I could come to your house and just kind of pick up, um, kind of pick up some hours at an hourly rate and just work it off until we are agreed that we're done. 
So Brian thinks about it for a second, says, okay, deal. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you the $5,000. <clears> you come and work for me. We'll do minimum wage, 10 bucks an hour. And as soon as you work 500 hours, you know, 500 hours times 10 bucks would be the $5,000. After you get to that point, we'll call it even and you won't owe anything anymore. You won't have to work for me anymore and you can go on your way and we can just uh, call it even. Well, if you look at the kind of the United States uh, version of a full-time schedule, it would be about 40 hours per week. So if you take that 40 hours per week and say that I'm coming over to, to you know, Brian's house to try to help him out and work off this debt that I have, that I'm, I'm into him now because he, um, he gave me the $5,000, so I'm indebted, so I'm working it off. If you take that 40 hours and translate it into 500 hours, it would take 12 and a half weeks for me to work it off if I worked full-time 40 hours a week, just over three months. And so let's just pretend for a second that, you know, I come over to his house and I say, Brian, what do you want me to do? And he may say, you know, go cut the grass. Well, well, I guess we're in Phoenix, right? So it wouldn't be cutting the grass. He'd be like, wash the rocks in the front yard, right? <laughs> or pick out some of the weeds or, you know, just kind of trim some of the bushes or whatever it is need to be done around the house. <clears throat> and then I would do those things. And let's just say that I'm, I'm got a rhythm and I've been working full time for about three weeks and I am pretty much tired of this. I'm tired of working. I'm tired of, of trying to pay off this debt. And so I say, you know what? I know I'm supposed to go 12 and a half weeks. Here I am at three weeks. I don't want to do this anymore. And I pick up and bounce. Now, on top of Brian being very frustrated, um, <clears throat> that is kind of what we're, we're the example that historians and biblical scholars have given us. That's what's going on uh, prior to this book of Philemon being written. Onesimus is a slave, um, a servant, a slave who's in the same predicament that I just described with me and Brian. He's in the same predicament with Philemon. He has potentially borrowed some money from him and he's needing to work it off. And he decides, you know, before it's done and he's just, you know, before he has uh, uh, fulfilled his word and fulfilled his, you know, 12 and a half weeks or whatever it was that he worked out with Philemon to pay back his debt, he has decided, I don't want to do this anymore. And he throws up deuces and walks out. And before he walks out, he stops off in Philemon's house and then physically takes, steals a whole bunch of money. So not only is, is Onesimus, his servant and slave, um, not paying back the money that he, uh, that he borrowed, he's not only uh, forfeiting their agreement, he goes into Philemon's house, takes a whole bunch of money, and it's kind of insult to injury and walks out. <clears throat> now he is looking for a place to go. He is looking to, to live it up. You know, Onesimus, this, this uh, newly freed servant guy is going, you know, where do I go have a good time? I got a bag full of money and I've got to get away from this city where Philemon's in. You know what? I'm going to go to the place where I can find anything and do anything that I want. In the United States, our equivalent would be kind of someone saying, I'm going to go to Sin City. I'm going to go to Vegas because you can find anything and everything that you want to do there. Um, and, and so in the, in the equivalent of Onesimus, and in the biblical time, Onesimus would be going to Rome. It would be kind of a similar comparison, not exact, but a similar comparison of what was available to him in Rome. He's going to go party it up. He's going to go live it up. He is not a believer in Christ. He just goes and he decides, I'm going to just try to drown myself in, in pleasure. So Onesimus is gone with a big bag of money. He's trying to live it up. And he is living on stolen money. 
And we don't have a whole bunch of details about how this trans, uh, transpires, but while Onesimus is in Rome, he's partying up, living that high life, you know, doing all the stuff that he's wanted, wanting to do. We out here, you know, making, making trouble or raising, you know, ra- raising some trouble here. And he, somewhere during his time in Rome, runs across one of Philemon's good friends. So Onesimus is living it up on stolen money, and one day he's in Rome. The crowd parts, and he sees Philemon's best friend, Paul. Now, we don't have any specific details about how this interaction went. We don't know if, um, if Onesimus got in trouble and was thrown in the same prison that Paul was in for preaching the gospel. We're not sure if Onesimus ran across someone who was preaching and they brought him to learn from Paul. But somehow or another, Paul and Onesimus connect. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but if you can just picture for a second, Paul is sitting here. He's talking to Onesimus. And Onesimus, he starts to learn about him, and Onesimus starts to tell him about all the stuff that he has done to this guy named Philemon. And Paul starts putting two and two together and realizing Onesimus has robbed and stolen from his very good friend. Now, I'm not sure about you, but in that instance, I would have had a serious problem if I was Paul. If you do something hurtful to me, steal from me directly, you know, we can talk it out and, and, and kind of, you know, be men and go back and forth and kind of settle it out and I can kind of handle it, all right? But if you do something wrong to my family, my wife, my son, or people that are friends of mine that um, I, I view kind of close as family or as extended family, I, it's, it's actually worse for me. And I'm sure many of you are the same way, right? Like if you hurt me, I'm all right, we can deal with it. But you hurt some people that I really like, then it's worse. <clears throat> this is the reason that um, God did not assign me to be Apostle Paul, because I would have been very tempted to tear into Onesimus, maybe even lay hands on this guy, but that's the reason he's the Apostle Paul and not me, right? So, but Paul winds up connecting with Onesimus, and over a period of time, Paul winds up leading him to the Lord. He winds up leading him to the Lord. Again, we don't have details about how they connected, but those details really don't matter because what matters in this story is what Paul does next. Paul spends some time with Onesimus. And then after he comes to the Lord, Paul is talking to him and discipling him and teaching him about Jesus and and, and what he did and how he lived and how he's supposed to live his life. Paul asks Onesimus to do something very unusual. Paul writes this letter that we have in our Bible, the book of Philemon. He writes the letter to Philemon and doesn't send somebody else out there, one of the people who is traveling companions, to go send it to Philemon. No, he hands the letter to Onesimus, the guy who's done Philemon wrong, and says, hey man, I want you to take this letter to Philemon yourself. <clears throat> Man, you want to talk about some drama? I don't know if you're a person who spends a lot of time in Scripture or reads it, but you should because there are some crazy, you know, truth is stranger than fiction stories and historical accounts of what happens to different people, and this is one of those things. 
So Paul convinces Onesimus to deliver the letter. We don't know how long this has been, but it's been long enough for him to have some teaching and run across Paul and, and become saved and start, start along his journey with having a relationship with the Lord and becoming a disciple of Christ. We don't know how long this has been, but we, we know it's been a significant period of time. So here's Onesimus going down the road back to Philemon's house with this letter. Just imagine for a second. Philemon's at home. He's kicking back. Can't go anywhere because there's a, na- a pandemic going on throughout the globe. Catching reruns of The Office on Netflix. And that's wildly, oddly specific. He's not really doing those things. But he's just chilling at his house, right? He's just, he's there. He's not expecting to see Onesimus. He had to figure out what happened. He had to figure out that Onesimus um, rejected and, and did not complete his agreement. He had to uh, realize that Onesimus was the one who took the money. And so <clears throat> this has been sitting with him for a long time. He gets up, not expecting to hear a knock at his door, opens the door, and there he is. Live and in person, Philemon sees the guy who did him wrong, Onesimus, at his doorstep. Just imagine the emotions running through Philemon at the moment. The reason I say to imagine that for a second is because I don't want you to put anything onto the text, but I want you to remember that these are real people, real emotions, real scenarios that we're talking about in these biblical accounts. Imagine how, how you would feel. I can just kind of just sense the anger and the frustration and the, 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 the need for vengeance and the betrayal and the hurt and all of these emotions bottled up inside of me. And I open the door up when I see this guy, all of that gets pushed to the surface. Imagine the words that ran across Philemon's head that he probably couldn't say. <laughs> Imagine his shock and anger. And before he lights into Onesimus, Onesimus says, Philemon, can you just give me one second? I have something for you. And then Onesimus hands Philemon the letter from his good friend, Paul. Now, with that backdrop and that historical understanding of what's happened, let's look at the book of Philemon, chapter 1, verses 5 through 21. And let's see what Paul says to Philemon. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor from you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do, but because of our love, I prefer to simply ask you, Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. 
Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me a while I am in, as I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now, he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, which he knows he does, Charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Man. Just imagine the predicament that Philemon is now in with Onesimus here on his doorstep. Here he is staring at the man who's done him wrong in multiple instances, has broken his word, and flat out stolen from him. And without any warning, he shows back up with this letter from his best friend Paul asking him, Philemon, to let it all go. It's very important to realize that Philemon had every legal and moral right to prosecute Onesimus. He had every right to do that. He had every right to enslave him against his will, to throw him into a debtor's prison or have him put in jail. He has done nothing wrong, Philemon. Philemon has done nothing wrong to Onesimus, and Onesimus is 100% guilty. This is one of those, you know, open and shut cases that lawyers on television shows uh, love to prosecute because they say it's a sure win. It's like an open and shut case. It's, it's a, something that's going to be easy to prosecute. But now, after losing the money he gave to Onesimus, after losing the work that would have repaid it back, after losing the money that has been stole from his very home, Paul is asking Philemon to take another loss. He's asking them, forget everything that is rightfully owed to him. Keep Onesimus around and treat him as a brother in Christ. In my own flesh and emotions, if I, if I would imagine myself as Philemon... I would just imagine that had to be insanely hard for him to do. See, if I put myself in that situation, the follow the rules side of me wants this young man, Onesimus, to learn something from his mistake, pay the consequences for his wrongdoing. And there's benefit in that. There's benefit of understanding that there are consequences to actions. But my guess here is that Onesimus is not just some little kid. He is a grown man, maybe a younger man, but he's grown. And he understands that there's consequences to actions. 
having somebody pay for the consequence of their action and, and, and own up and pay up for their mistake is 100% understandable. But Paul shows us four things in the, in the book of Philemon, in this short account of what happened with him, uh, Philemon and Onesimus. He shows us four things that we can do that, I, that as an example for us as believers in Christ to follow that I want to hit real quick. Number one, Paul was not selfish. Paul was not selfish. See, Paul could have earned some serious brownie points with Philemon. He could have heard Onesimus' story, um, captured him, sent him home in chains with a note pinned to his chest that said, I know this fool did you wrong. I caught him here in Rome partying with your money. I had him arrested and delivered to you so this little twit can get back to what he said he was going to do and work off his debt. <clears throat> he could have done that. And if, we were, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I look at that and go, kind of had it coming, Onesimus. If he'd have done that, I totally would have understood. But in this action, we see something, that Paul could have taken the opportunity to look good to Philemon. It's the next line there in your notes. He could have taken this opportunity to look good to Philemon. He could have done exactly what we just described, captured Onesimus, sent him back to Philemon, and then bragged to all of his friends in the jail, the jailer, the, um, the guards, the people that were coming to hear him still preach the gospel, how good of a friend he was, how loyal he was. You don't cross me and my friends and my boys, and everybody could know that that loyalty was with Paul, and guess what that would do? It would shine a, a spotlight on Paul. It would say, man, Paul is an honorable guy. He's all this guy. He has all these things. He's, he's a great friend. And he, they would be right, but it would be kind of a selfish type of a thing to do to put the spotlight on him. Almost like what we would call a humble brag. But Paul doesn't care if the spotlight's on him. He doesn't care how good of a friend he would be perceived to be by doing these things or how loyal he is to his boys. No, he realizes all of those things can be done from a point of selfishness. I want to look good. And Paul knows there's a different way to go. He rejects the opportunity to be selfish and takes the spotlight off himself and puts the spotlight where it should be on Jesus and his heart for salvation. Paul was not selfish. He exampled that in what he did and how he dealt with Onesimus. Number two, <clears throat> Paul doesn't take the high road. He takes the road of the Most High. Paul doesn't take the high road. He takes the road of the Most High. See, Paul sees this as an opportunity to do something greater than just enforce the rules, greater than just enforce the law, greater than the repaying you know, physical money that might be owed in a temporary, temporal world. He takes this opportunity to take a step higher, to go above the high road and love like Christ instructs all of us to love. On Father's Day, I kind of look at what he did here as the ultimate dad move, right? 
any fathers that are listening, when you're disciplining your children and teaching them about right and wrong, I challenge you not to just have the heart of a father, but have the heart of the father, the perfect father, the God that we have been reconciled to through the death of Jesus and and his work on the cross and the resurrection. Don't just have the heart of a father. You may have had a great father as an example or a father figure that you had an example to follow. I'm encouraging you to go even past that and have the heart of the father when dealing with disciplining, teaching, raising, and building our own children. This decision that Paul made is straight from the heart of the heavenly father that is obviously beating in Paul's chest. He, Paul doesn't take the high road. He takes the road of the Most High. Number three, acting like our Heavenly Father has eternal impacts. <clears throat> Paul shows us this, that acting like our Heavenly Father has eternal impacts. You know, our, in our current cultural climate, we're hearing a lot of people, over, especially over the last month or so, um, express on you know social media and primarily through all various forms of media <clears throat> what people should be doing and 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 they start to get more specific they they have opinions on what the church should be doing to combat the issues that were that are that are being forced to the front and to the the top of our minds and attention at the moment racism inequality justice and things of that say, of that sort they have a lot of opinions and they say things like if your church doesn't talk about a b or c you shouldn't go there And then 10 minutes later, you'll find somebody who says, if your church does talk about A, B, or C, you shouldn't go there. Somebody else, you know, would say, if your church doesn't deal with issue X, Y, or Z, you should find another church. Then somebody else says, if your church does deal with issue X, Y, and Z, you should find another church. There's so much confusion, back and forth, yelling. There's so much noise. Now, there are, admittedly, some cultural things as a society, that we can do, like affecting laws to be changed and things, and things of that, that nature. And when we change those laws and provide oversight for, for accountability and, and, and all of that stuff, there will be some benefit. There will be, uh, in essence, a, a way for things to get a little bit better, but putting all those things in place will not solve the core issue. They won't. In a sense, making cultural changes that are needed and are justified, but there is a higher road that we can take. The church can be the leading example in this in many areas in a relatively short time frame. And you may ask how? Let me quickly hit five little things that we can do as the church, as believers in Christ. We can follow Jesus' instructions and treat every single person as if they were image bearers of God. Every human being that is in, that calls himself a believer, that is participating in our church that we attend, if we would just treat them as image bearers of God, it would make a massive difference. We can love God with everything we have and love people as we do ourselves. This is the greatest commandment. Jesus himself laid these two things out. 
love God with everything you have and love people as you love yourself. We can start by treating the people in our local church fellowships with the love, patience, dignity, kindness, grace, and compassion that comes as the fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside us. We can actually take those things, those good things that are growing from us and put them in action to the people who are in our churches. We cannot just take the high road, but take the road of the Most High, the way that Paul has exampled to us in this story with Onesimus. We can look past our differences and ideas, ethnicities, gender, sizes, and shapes to see people that God loves and He sent His Son to die for. Which people did He send His Son to die for? Everybody. Everyone. If we simply put those those, those few things into action, <clears throat> we can crush the evil and hateful attitudes that arise from fallen flesh. We can crush racism, sexism, elitism, all the isms. We can crush them in the church. Why should we start there? Because when the world continues to look for ways to cure a fallen condition with ideas from fallen people that will not work, they should look around and see the church of Jesus Christ be a shining example to the planet that following what Jesus says in his word actually works. We should be that shining example as the church, as believers in Christ. This won't be easy. It will require us listening, caring, and acting like Jesus. It will require us to co-figure, be the body of Christ, be the light of the gospel to a dark world. We can pass all the laws that we want to, and we should pass some. We can sign up every person to vote that we know to participate in elections. We can apply public pressure on media and social media to people and groups and, and businesses to, to, to push for the change that we think needs to happen. And all of these do have some value, but human laws do not solve the problem of sin. <clears throat> and at the core of everything we're facing is the problem of sin. Mankind will find a way to hate. If we discovered some breakthrough uh, medicine, like everybody take two vitamin C tablets and racism is cured tomorrow, aside from the vitamin C companies being thoroughly excited about that prospect, <clears throat> it's just a hypothetical. But let's just say, pretend you could take two vitamin C tablets and racism would be gone tomorrow. Guess what? There would still be problems because it did not solve the heart issue. Because none of these physical things solve a heart that is given into sin. Mankind will find a way to hate. It will find a way to be offended. People who are not following Christ will create all sorts of ways to try to give themselves some type of satisfaction, but it will not work. I know it won't work because I see it in God's word and I've also seen that exampled in my own life and lives of the people that I know and talk to frequently throughout the years of ministry. They tried to fill that hole with something that wasn't God and though it filled for a moment, it didn't fulfill and make that longing and loneliness and gap that's almost in the center of their chest and their gut go away. 
Matt, you kind of made a big statement there. You're telling me that even if we solve the issues that we have right now, we will invent more issues? Yes. How can you say that? Look at, look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. <clears throat> Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, these are people who are not following him, not believers. Since they thought it foolish to not to acknowledge God, <clears throat> um, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. It's a pretty long list. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Simply put, every effort that moves us to any end that does not result in deepening our relationship with Christ is a selfish endeavor. I'm going to say that one more time. Every effort that moves us to any end that does not result in deepening our relationship with Christ is a selfish endeavor. Paul gives us an example to the entire church to follow in this book of Philemon. And that guidance can be applied to where we are in our culture this very day. He gives us an example of how to treat, excuse me, Onesimus. What to ask his friend Philemon to do. And how does that turn out? Philemon does what Paul asks and elevates Onesimus to an equal brother in Christ. And in doing so, Onesimus is set on a path of eternal impact. So here you have Onesimus, 100% wrong, knowing what he's done, runs across Paul, has betrayed and hurt Philemon, runs across his good friend Paul, and now is pushed back together. Philemon now has the choice. Is he going to forgive and take not the high road, but the road of the Most High? Is he not going to be selfish and get vengeance for himself? Or is he going to look at the bigger picture and see that Onesimus was dead in his sin before, and now that he is saved is a new creation? And that truth and reality settles on Philemon, and he does what Paul asks. Because of both of those men taking the higher road, the road of the Most High, because they did the difficult thing and did not act in a selfish, I got to get my repayment here back. They didn't act in those ways. What happens? Onesimus is brought back into uh, an equal relationship with Philemon as a brother in Christ, And Onesimus goes on to become the bishop of the church in Ephesus. A major church in that time, at the beginning of Christianity, Paul wrote them a letter. The the letter to the Ephesians was to this church. And Onesimus, the man who has been forgiven, for all intents and purposes, scholars and historians tell us that he becomes the bishop of the church in Ephesus. 
them doing the right thing had an eternal impact. Number four, and it's the last one we'll go through today. Paul helps Onesimus live up to his name. Paul helps Onesimus to live up to his name. See, the name Onesimus means useful. It means useful. Before salvation, Onesimus was not useful. He was destructive. He lived in many of those ways that we just read earlier from Romans. But now as a believer in Christ, Onesimus fulfills his purpose, what he was created to be. My friends, when we submit our lives fully to Christ, we have his love, the gift that he's given us of salvation, and a relationship with God who created us and knows our ultimate purpose. I'm going to say that one more time. When we submit our lives fully to Christ, we have his love. We have the gift of salvation and a relationship with the God who created us and knows our ultimate purpose. As I was reading this story and, and seeing the example that Paul set for all of us as believers <clears throat> to not just do the right thing, but take the, the, the road of the most high, not just do the, the thing that would, everyone would look at and applaud, but do the thing that people will go, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? And it, we do those things as believers in Christ that don't necessarily make sense because we are instructed to love like no one else. We are instructed to love and follow the example and the teachings of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about all the things that are going on in our culture and our society, I thought, how can we move forward from here? Because yelling at each other on social media platforms is not going to work. It'll create tension. It'll create strife. It'll create anxiety. It could create depression in people if you go too far down the hole. It could create isolation and, and fear and panic. It will create all of those things, but those are the things that are brought on by the enemy. Those are not fruits of the Spirit. Those are fruits of fear. <clears throat> they are the things the enemy would have us, would have us submit to, the, the things that uh, he would want to grow in our life, opposite of the fruit of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word. First thing that we have to do is realize that as a church, <clears throat> we are supposed to be a loving community of people that have great, real, deep relationships with each other and love and forgive each other as Christ did. That is actually not supposed to be just taking in place in the church at large, but it's supposed to be taking place in our local group of believers, our local gathering of believers in Christ, our local expression of church. If we take it one step further and we drill it down even lower, that those principles should be alive in our homes. 
They should be alive in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids. And no, I'm not telling you there has to be perfection. What I'm telling you is that we have to follow the lead of Jesus, the lead of the apostles, the lead of God's word, and look at the examples they've set for us, and not just to do what everybody else might think might be good, but take the highest road, the road of the Most High. If we're honest, we have to look at ourselves as a collective church across the world. And if we were taking the test and turning it into our teacher or our, or our professor, they would give it back with a bunch of red X's on the paper because we have probably failed this section of the test. The great thing about handing that paper into our teacher, our Lord Jesus, to handing it to God Almighty, is that he can hand it back to us with those X's and say, take the test again, here's the cheat sheet, here's my word, and let's see how you do now. I am not responsible for the church at large. I'm not responsible for the church all over the world. I am not responsible for the churches in America or even in the state. I am assigned as a under-shepherd to the people of Roots Community Church here in Phoenix. And so let me talk to all of us specifically just for a moment. <clears throat> Let's be the people who love each other so well, that forgive each other so much, that example the goodness of, of God's grace to each other, that we develop the fruits of the Spirit, growing from that relationship, the roots we have in a relationship with Christ. Let those things be so prevalent in us that the people who are around us every day as unbelievers would look at us and say, how in the world did you forgive that person who did you wrong? How in the world did you show grace? You could have, you could have taken them to court. They could have gone to jail. They could have done all of these things. But let us be the people who don't focus on the temporal, but look at the eternal and example what Scripture tells us that we need to do. If every church would take this on as a priority, it would change the world in a way that could be undescribable throughout human history. Not perfection, not pretending to like somebody you don't like, but allowing the love that is the number one thing of the fruit of the Spirit of our life to raise up in us and say, I might not gel with that person's personality. I might not get along with the same things that these persons, uh, uh, they, they like or that they're, the, the things that they prefer to do or <clears throat> not ungodly things, just in life. We can look past all of that and love them the way that Christ has instructed us to. We're supposed to be loving our families and our brothers and sisters in Christ like this first as an example to the world of what they should be doing. And when they can't figure it out on their own, when the laws don't fix all of the problems, when the, 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 the fallen efforts of fallen people don't fix the issues of a fallen world, they can look to the light of the church, to God's people as a shining beacon of hope to say, just do what he says. We're not perfect. We're far from it. But the words of our Father, the words of Jesus our Savior, ring true in us. Let those things ring true in us, Roots Community Church. 
There will be other things we accomplish as a church and a body of believers, but if we accomplish nothing else, this can have a pivotal effect in this city. It can have a pivotal effect on the people that we work with that are in our families. It can be the true catalyst for change because our hearts have been submitted to the one that can fix the true problem of sin. I want to challenge us, RCC Phoenix, here on Father's Day. In 2020, our first one together as a church. I want to challenge us to do exactly that. To live the words of Jesus. To build the type of relationships that are foundational to show the world the love of God. Nina sang the song earlier that if He never blesses us once again, it's enough that His grace has took our sin. And the words of that song are so true. We can show and be the example to the world of what they're looking for. They don't know it, but their hearts are searching for an answer. They're searching for a Savior. And the strategy of God Almighty is that the church would be that example, that shining light. Us as believers would be that extension to the world to bring them to Him. They can only do that, ultimately and truthfully, through a relationship and a submitted life to Christ.